Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored to welcome each of you to today's teleconference on the wage and hour issues, and also to introduce to you two of my brilliant colleagues um, and knowledgeable attorneys, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the firm, who's been with me almost 20 years at this point, and Alyssa Klein, who's a member and uh, in the special projects department of the firm. I'm going to act in my usual role as the moderator for this session. So as I just mentioned, the topic is wage and hour issues. And the reason it's important is we're seeing, obviously, audits and investigations and uh, everything connected with wage and hour issues, which are connected with H-1B salary and for green card related issues. Dual wage and hour issues are important for all employers. and. However, with respect to employers of H-1 non-immigrant workers, they have specific wage and hour issues that are tied to the H-1B petition. So we're going to talk about what employers need to do to remain in compliance with the various laws and regulations regarding the payment of wages to their employees, specifically with respect to requirements that come into play when you have H-1 workers. So with that, I'm going to ask Maybe, Aaron, if I can start with you, who conducts the wage and hour investigations and how are they triggered? So thank you, Sheila. The Department of Labor, the DOL, uh, through their wage and hour division, conduct, their conduct are responsible for investigating and enforcing several different parts of the law, including federal minimum wage, overtime pay, record-keeping requirements, uh, and also various employment standards and work protections uh, required under U.S. immigration law. And for the investigations that we're talking about today, Sheila, these are typically triggered by a complaint from an employee or a former employee of the company. Uh, the DOL makes it very easy for workers to file a complaint, uh, so treat the workers fairly is, is always a good rule of thumb. Uh, also, keep proper documentation to evidence the steps companies have taken to remain in compliance with all wage and hour uh, requirements. Now, in addition to complaints uh, from employees or former employees, investigations can also be initiated based on a referral or recommendation of another federal agency. Uh, for example, the USCIS Fraud Detection and National Security, or FDNS, officers are responsible for conducting random site visits to companies that employ H-1 and or L-1 workers. And if during the site visit the officer comes to, to learn any negative information about the employer or see something that's suspicious, they can refer the case to Wage and Hour Division, WHD, or U.S. Customs and Immigration Enforcement, ICE, for further investigation. Well, it certainly sounds very scary, and I guess with right reason, because as most of us are aware on this conference call, investigations have been on the rise since January of 2017. Um, clearly, that was one of the whole sort of issues with respect to Trump saying buy American, hire American, focusing on going after employers and employees for violations of immigration laws. 
and while being investigated may not have been something that the H-1 employers were particularly concerned by, the chance of being investigated by the Department of Labor is expected to continue to increase uh, for H-1B employers. So, Aaron, what specifically has been changing? So, um, I would say nothing and everything. In other words, the law hasn't really changed at all. But enforcement priorities have changed, and that's what it really comes down to. On April 4th of this year, the Department of Labor made an announcement that they're planning to protect U.S. workers from the H-1B program discrimination. Uh, Their plan contained a number of initiatives, including regarding investigations. And what the Department of Labor stated was that they would, this is almost a direct quote, they would rigorously use all of its existing authority to initiate investigations of H-1B program violators. This includes greater coordination with other federal agencies. So if they started to see one thing going, they can shift and bring in other government agencies to help support or to look into other areas. Uh, For example, the USCIS also announced that they would be targeting, um, uh, they would be targeting um, companies that are H-1B dependent or who place workers off-site with unannounced site visits as well. So if you fall into either or both of these categories, and the vast majority of tech consulting firms do, you really need to make sure that you're prepared for potential site visits. Yeah, and as we just said at the beginning, the Department of Labor is responsible for enforcing laws regarding the payment of wages for all workers in the United States, and the H-1B program has additional specific wage requirements that H-1B employers need to be aware of and ensure that they are in compliance with. To begin with, we need to understand what wages employers must pay to their H-1B workers, and H-1B workers must be paid, as you know, the required wage, the higher of the prevailing wage or the required wage. The required wage is either the actual wage or the prevailing wage, whichever is higher. And these wages are listed on both the LCA and the Form I-129, which is submitted with the H-1B petition, and also on additional documents, um, maybe the cover letter and in the employer's public access files. Alyssa, so the prevailing wage, how do you set the prevailing wage? All right, the prevailing wage is set based on a review of the job description, the geographic area of intended employment, and the minimum hiring requirements for the position. Practically speaking, this is normally obtained from the Foreign Labor Certification Data Center, uh, the FLC, and the employer lists the occupational code and prevailing wage data from the FLC on the LCA, which is then submitted to the DOL uh, via their online ICERT system for certification. The actual wage, on the other hand, is, is what the employer literally actually pays others, and we're talking about a guaranteed base salary here, who are working in the same occupation with similar experience and qualifications in that in the same geographic area. Okay, thanks, Alyssa. So, Aaron, so to begin with, the employer must accurately calculate the prevailing wage. How is that done? So the way that you would do this is you'd identify the correct occupational classification or the SOC code and using actual minimum requirements to determine what the actual wage level should be. Um, As we're finding out more and more, 
employers cannot and should not use different occupational codes or incorrect wage levels to reduce their wage obligation because these are we're seeing are coming back more and more to be problematic. An example of this could be, for example, the code of a computer programmer, which generally carries a lower prevailing wage requirement than a software developer. But if the employer is, uh, but if the employment is more accurately classified as a software developer, the employer cannot pick computer programmer because of the wage issues. Rotted. Right. And, and the same is true for the, the wage level for a position. The FLC data center has four wage levels for, for the occupations, one through four, one being the lowest, four being the highest. And one of the methods of calculating the wage level is actually based on a mathematical or point system, if you will, that the DOL provides in their guidance, and it's available online as well. And you use the specific criteria, education, years of experience, maybe there's additional factors like special skills or supervisory responsibilities, and these are all calculated to hit a particular wage level. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, the, the employer has to keep evidence of how they calculated that wage level in the public access file. Now, this is kind of a big deal because, you know, there was an old administrative law judge case uh, from several years ago where it was found that an employer was routinely classifying their workers at wage level one. So they were doing the right classification, but the wage level, they kept pushing at wage level one. Uh, and they were doing this to save money. But after an investigation, the government determined that many of their employees were actually wage level two. And the result was that the company was forced to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in back wages to its employees. Well, that sounds pretty scary. So then what counts as payments of the required wage? Because you know, can, for example, benefits and the like be counted as part of the prevailing wage? Or is it only the cash paid free and clear to the employee that truly counts? The Department of Labor position is that it's cash paid free and clear to the employee that should really counts so that any money such as a per diem payment or an advance that is not reported to the IRS in computing the actual wages according to Department of Labor, should not and does not count as part of the required wage. What about benefits, Alyssa? Right. No, benefits, uh, we get this question a lot, uh, benefits such as health care, uh, you know, contributions from the employer towards retirements, those can't be, be factored in. Um, bonuses can, can potentially go one way or the other. These can only be used as part of the required wage if they are for a guaranteed amount. So if a bonus is only going to be paid based on some possible future event or meeting some possible profit target, uh, then that amount is contingent on something happening that may or may not actually occur. And if that's the case, you can't use it towards the required wage amount. Yeah. And also, we need to keep in mind that it makes no difference if the H-1B worker agrees to accept a lower wage. So knowing that, Aaron, if I can ask you, what deductions are permitted from the wages paid to H-1B workers and still be counted as meeting the wage requirements? So as you, as you mentioned, there are some authorized deductions that can be taken from the worker's salary. And even if the worker's salary drops below the actual wage or the prevailing wage, what we'll refer to as the required wage, it would still be permissible. Uh, those deductions include, for example, um, FICA, the, the, federal, um, the federal, uh, federal taxes and state taxes, 
uh, any deductions that are permitted by a collective bargaining agreement, and uh, deductions that would ordinarily be taken out of a similarly situated worker's salary, including a U.S. worker, uh, and are revealed to the workers prior to starting employment with that company. Perhaps the best example of this would be a deduction for uh, would be a deduction for health insurance. And on the other hand, deductions are not permitted. Um, <clears throat> include those to recoup business expense, expenses such as attorney fees and other costs connected to the uh, the H-1B program, which are required to be paid for by the employer. And this is pretty hot topic, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's important to note that by law, some of the costs of an H-1 petition must be paid for by the employer. For example, the $500 fraud fraud preventing and detection fee, um, the employer is specifically prohibited from recouping this fee from the employee in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, you have the, the regulations which do not actually specifically prevent the H-1B worker from paying the petition filing fee, which is now currently set at $460, yet the Department of Labor really frowns upon it and expects and requires, almost makes it suggest that it is an employer expense and should not be an employee-related expense. Right. No, and that is confusing because that particular fee is not spelled out in the regulation, but the regulations do specifically state that where the employer depresses the employee's wages below the required wage by imposing on the employee any of the employer's business expenses, the DOL would consider the amount to be an unauthorized deductions from, from wages, um, even if it isn't showing up as a deduction in the payroll record. So what this means is that if the H-1 employee pays for business expenses, which generally includes attorney fees and various fees associated with an H-1B, this is viewed as a reduction in the worker's wages by the DOL. So even if a person's pay slip indicates that he's getting paid the required wage and any costs related to the H-1B process that are paid for by the worker may be viewed by the DOL as a deduction from these wages, potentially reducing the wages below the required wage amount. Well, that's certainly pretty scary. And also there's this whole other rule that many of you on this conference call are looking at connected, related to the benching of H-1B workers. So, Aaron, what is the rule on benching? So I want to say that this is benching without pay because benching an employee without pay may actually be a violation of the H-1B petition in general. If an employee is benched in the U.S., they may, they may be out of status, and both the employer and the employee could have violated some part of the, of the, um, H-1B, of the H-1B law. Um, so, um, because the H-1B employer should always have work for the H-1B worker, and if the work is no longer available, it's really the employer's requirement to terminate the H-1B employment, employment and to withdraw the petition. However, should an employer decide not to terminate the employment, they're still bound to pay the required wages to the H-1B worker. So if you're in this situation, employers should not withhold payment or promise to make uh, payment later uh, of the unpaid wages once work is found. The the DOL does require wages to be paid um, at least monthly. And these are actual wages have to be paid. A very common practice we see with IT consulting industry is that the required wages is not accurately listed on the LCA. So when the employer benches the employees, even though they're paying the wage listed on the LCA, it's still not correct. Right. So for an example, if the employer lists the wage is 65000 on the LCA, but in reality that worker is being paid at a rate of 85000 
if the employee is benched and the employer reverts to the, the LCA wage of 65000 that's actually not sufficient because they were actually getting paid eighty five. So the wage that would have to continue to be paid would be the eighty five. And this is very common. In this example, not only is the employer subject to back wages, but their uh, but their both their LCA and their public access file documents would likely have some inaccuracies, and the employer could find themselves subject to fines for these violations. And this is so common, unfortunately. So let's get to the next issue. Is it ever okay to legally for an employer not to pay the H-1B employee the full salary mentioned? Uh, I know there are situations where it is permissible not to pay the H-1B workers. So, Aaron and Alyssa, do you want to discuss them? Sure. So, usually this is generated from an employee initiative. An employee brings the request to the employer. So, an example would be uh, an H-1B worker uh, who's taking a leave of absence under family medical leave to the same extent as any other worker. So, if a worker takes unpaid maternity leave under the Family Medical Leave Act or the FMLA, the employer is generally not obligated to pay the worker's wage for that time period. Right. A truly voluntary leave of absence is what we're talking about here. And in those situations, the wages don't have to be paid. Another example would be if an H-1B worker maybe exhausted all their paid time off, uh, they didn't have any paid vacation days left, and the um, employer can choose to grant the voluntary leave if it, again, is specifically for, you know, a voluntary personal reason, say, a wedding or or perhaps, you know, a funeral. Um, In these situations, the employee you know, is requesting that personal time off, and that can be granted without pay. The critical thing here is the following the rule of the three Ds, documentation, documentation, and documentation. Because if it's truly voluntary, at the end of the day, if the government conducts an investigation, if you're looking to do an extension, if there's an H-1B visa application, all of those are going to be able to, are going to require you to prove that it was something that was voluntary and not something that was forced. Uh, If a government agency that's reviewing the H-1B's worker pay record sees any gap in the pay or a low W-2 or a year-to-date amount, uh, such documentation would provide an explanation for the gap of the salary. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, it's needless to say, it's obvious, but employers really need to be careful with approving or with claiming something as an unpaid leave of absence because as employers, we are not permitted to pressure the employee or the worker into taking what is supposedly a voluntary, within quotes, leave of absence. If the leave of absence is based on the employer or the company or the end client not giving the work for the employee to perform, that leave is not considered as voluntary uh, and the wages must still be paid because you know when things go sour, the employee is going to point fingers at you and the Department of Labor is then going to come in and slap penalties, etc. Also, as we had previously mentioned, uh, you obviously do not have to pay the worker if the employment is actually terminated, but for this, there must be a bona fide termination. And there are many steps that an employer needs to take in order to effect what's called a bona fide termination. And Alyssa, if I can ask you to explain the three-step process. Sure, absolutely. So the first step is notifying the worker. Um, this We recommend that this be in writing. So again, document, document, document. As Aaron said, um, you should have the proper documentation of the notice. Uh, second, you must uh, cover or at least offer to pay for the H-1B worker's uh, transportation back to his or her country of residence. Again, 
document it. If the worker chooses not to depart the U.S., make sure you have, you know, something in writing from them um, refusing the offer and, and something, you know, again, documented that you actually offer to cover the costs. Uh, the third part is notifying USCIS of the termination. So the employer is responsible for withdrawing the H-1B petition. Uh, it's this very simple process. You send a letter into the USCIS Service Center. Um, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It can just simply state that the H-1B petition is no longer needed. Um, and also, you know, keep copies of the record, send it uh, in a manner where you can track delivery um, because you don't always get an immediate uh, confirmation from USCIS on these. Um, they're not always updated online. So again, it's important to keep your own records of this. Um, also, the, the withdrawal um, or the revocation is, is effective upon delivery. So it doesn't require any further action from USCIS for it to take effect. Yeah. You know, I've been having a couple of recent consultations where my uh, consultations have been saying that uh, the employer did not follow the first step and the third, uh, second step by notifying the employee or uh, offering the return transportation. But all the person was told was, well, we've sent a revocation notice or they found out from USCIS sending a confirmation of the termination um, where the employer just terminated the employee. And while that may give some level of protection for the company, if the employee actually files the complaint with Department of Labor that there is no notice, that there is no letter, no email, no documentation, and there's also no f uh, offer to pay the one-way return transportation home as required under the H-1 regulations, it could create complications for you as the employer. So just keep that in mind because sometimes we think we're very clever by just doing that before notifying the employee, and that's not fair or right. Next. Uh, so what can an employer do to protect themselves from possible investigations? I guess that's the million-dollar question for everybody. Obviously, there is no 100% foolproof way to eliminate or avoid an investigation. However, as most of these investigations are triggered by complaints generally from your employees, as employers, we all must ensure that we are paying the employees the required wages that we just discussed. Obviously, we need to treat all our employees uh, nicely so that they are less likely to go file a complaint. And while this may make common sense uh, to most of us, in reality, when we're busy and life happens and things happen, people are so busy following the legal protocols that we forget that it's important to be human and humane. Um, what are the other steps, Aaron and Alyssa? So, you know, the thing is like this. I look at this as like common sense. You know, we don't get upset at our car when we need to change the oil. We go and change the oil of the car. We know it's going to happen every three or four months. We do a routine well visit. We go and we get our health checked out to make sure there's no surprises or anything that's going on in that regard. We look at quarterly reviews of our businesses all the time to see whether we're making money, we're losing money, where we can cut costs, where we, we can increase profits. Uh, to me, it's the same exact thing when you're dealing with government documentation. So one of the steps that I recommend to employers is they should conduct some type of internal audit and review their pay uh, to their H-1B workers. Uh, I would do this in general. I would do this in conjunction with a review of all their LCA public access files, the PAFs. Uh, there may be a number of corrective actions for the employers to take if they find they've not paid employees the correct wages or if the LCAs themselves are not accurate. Uh, this could include initiating back payment of back wages or filing H-1B amendments with the new LCAs. Now, sometimes I hear from employers that it's cost prohibitive. 
In other words, I have 100 employees and I'm a, I have 50 employees on H-1B and to do all of the back wages and to do all of the public access files, it's going to take forever. It's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. My, my recommendation would be at least take the pulse, at least do a slice of what's there because usually mistakes or errors that happen tend to repeat themselves. So if, for example, you have 100 employees and maybe you have 200 public access files, including all of the renewals and all of the amendments that you filed, doing 10 or 15 of them, if you find a routine error that's taking place or something that's going on that doesn't look good, that will give you an indication of the quality of the rest of your files. Or conversely, if everything looks great, that will give you an indication that, hey, things likely are pretty good. Uh, not that you shouldn't do the full one, but at least do something to get an awareness of where you stand. Especially if there are trends and stuff. And I know that Alyssa and her team focus a lot on doing these audits and do, doing slices and dicing it up so that it's much more affordable um, and not cost prohibitive for um, companies and employers because people have to also watch the bottom line. You don't want to spend so much money that it would have been cheaper just to have the government investigate you, you know, so you want to make it very inexpensive to do that. Um, right. And, and taking these corrective steps, you know, again, there's no, no way to eliminate any possibility of an audit. But if you you know, if company does find themselves in that position where they are being investigated, they are being audited by wage and hour, um, that they can show that on their own, they made a good faith effort to correct errors, and it could possibly be taken into consideration by the investigator and impact potential fines. And talking about fines, what are the kinds of penalties or fines from a wage and hour investigation? Right. So there's a few. Uh, one, we've, we've been talking about wages. So uh, if the Department of Labor decides that the wages have not properly been paid, then that company is going to uh, be directed to pay pay the, the difference. Um, we call this back wages. Um, and then per violation, there, there can be fines. Uh, fines were increased and updated recently. Um, and there are factors that impact fines, whether or not uh, the violation was found to, found to be of a willful failure a willful misrepresentation or a willful violation, and that can greatly impact the maximum civil penalty or fines for the violations. Uh, the lowest level maxing out at around 1,800, then when you start getting into the, the willful uh, failures, you're looking at potentially up to approximately 7,300 or even over 50,000. Um, so they can be quite... Um, quite expensive uh, if the company is hit with multiple fines. Let, let me get a clarification. Mm -hmm. When you say $7,300 or fifty-one, is it mm -hmm. you mean per? Yeah, these per, per violation. Per violation. Well, that's pretty scary. Yeah, and these are maximums. Um, but yes, they did recently increase, increase these as well. Okay. And what about willful violators? Can there be debarment? Well, companies that are found to be willful violators um, or debarred from the H-1B program uh, do even when they're coming back, they do have a lot more. Um, they are subject to a lot more scrutiny. For example, uh, willful violator employers are subject to random investigations by the Department of Labor for a period of up to five years from the date that the employer that the employer is determined to be a willful violator. Uh, companies do not have to be found to be willful violators to be debarred. 
This can impact how long a company is debarred and how long they're disqualified for. And debarment means debarred from filing LCAs, labor condition applications, so it prevents you from doing future H-1Bs. So debarment is a pretty big deal. And, you know, finally, um, the Department of Labor maintains a list on its website, and you can see that non-willful violators have a one-year period of debarment and that companies that are willful violators, for the most part, have two-year periods of debarment. So as we can see, this whole topic is something that really it's important as employers to appreciate and understand the complexity, the width, the breadth of it With in this era, in this climate, political climate with a lot more investigations. Uh, it is so much less expensive to do uh, the, uh, you know, have somebody do the audit and review work because actually going through an investigation can suck up a lot of time, effort, energy, money, costs, because prevention is always cheaper than cure. Um, you know, Murthy Law Firm ha- does have a strong team that would, can certainly work with you and help you to audit the work for companies to monitor your internal policies. For example, I know that there's a sample where you can do, for example, 10 public access files and two back wage analysis for very nominal costs, just a few thousand. And what that might do is then protect you and your company because most likely there are trends involved and that will help you to gather those trends, go internally, make your internal corrections with your HR team and clean it up. And if you can show you did all this before the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division knocks on your door or before the ICE investigator, FDNS investigator, anybody from the government knocking on your door, it'll save you a ton of time and money, uh, both in the short term and in the long term, because besides the money itself, you also have the peace of mind, which is worth a lot. I know that we tend to be very time sensitive and we're actually doing really well because we try to do these conference calls with you all in the middle of the day uh, between 30 to 45 minutes, and I see we are right close to the 30-minute mark. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, Alyssa Klein, our senior attorney and member, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for your participation on today's topic of wage and hour issues, and we look forward to continuing to take very good care of you to protect you and your company so that you can focus on doing what you do best, getting your clients and being successful, and we can do what we do best, which is taking good care of you in the area of U.S. immigration law and areas connected with it, like audit and investigations and helping you plan and do whatever you do really well. With that, have a wonderful afternoon and thank you so much.